This is Sporting Max with Max Becker on SEN. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Sporting Max on 1116 SEN. It is your Sunday morning feed. Now, right now, I've got right here on Zoom with me an Australian swimming legend. You could describe her as the best female or Australian swimmer um, we've ever had. Kate Campbell, welcome to the show. It's an amazing honour to have you on. How are you? I'm well. Thank you so much for that introduction. Um, I'm going to make sure that everyone introduces me exactly like that from now on. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, Kate, I want to sort of start off and have a chat a bit about your childhood and what growing up, um, I guess, essentially was like for you. Yeah, so I started out in Africa. So I was born in a small African country called Malawi. And if you've heard of Malawi before, it's where Madonna adopts her children from, or you're, although you're probably even too young to know who Madonna is. She's <laughs> a very famous kind of older singer um, known for her uh, great dance moves um, yeah. and, and killer arms. So, uh, yeah, Madonna adopts her children from there. Uh, I sadly did not get adopted by Madonna, but I was very lucky <laughs> to have some very wonderful supportive parents. And we moved out to Australia in 2001. So when I was nine years old, we relocated to Australia and I am the eldest of five siblings, five children. So I uh, was um, when when uh, we arrived in Australia, the youngest uh, one was born in Australia, but the rest of us were all born in Africa. So what was um, I've read in my research that um, you were sort of homeschooled for the first few years of schooling. What was school like for you? Yeah, so we were completely homeschooled. Uh, Our mum had a curriculum that that we had to follow and we did lessons all morning and then uh, we got to play all afternoon and we had heaps and heaps of pets. Uh, You know, we had guinea pigs and rabbits and turkeys and chickens and dogs and cats and uh yeah it was this whole little menagerie that we had in our back garden so we used to go out and play with them uh you know ride our bikes around it was it was a really fun place to be a kid uh I think as an adult you probably notice a lot more of the poverty and a lot more of the sort of inequality but as a kid you just you don't really care. You're just having yeah. a good time. Yeah. So I read that your mum's a swimmer. Is that correct? And what was it like um, to look up to her, you know, as a young kid? Yeah. So my mum uh, was a swimmer. My mum was actually a synchronised swimmer. So it's, wow. it's called artistic swimming now. So it's, it's kind of like dancing in the water. Uh, it's, it's really, really impressive. So she was good enough to go to an Olympic Games or a World Championships or Commonwealth Games. But unfortunately, she is or was South African uh, at the time and it was during apartheid. So South Africa was banned from all international competition um, Mm. due to the the sanctions being placed upon them because of the political state uh, within the country. So she never got to go and compete internationally, but she taught me how to swim and she taught all our siblings how to swim. And there was sort of a a whole uh, community of of people who were living in uh, in Malawi at the time and she used to hold weekly swimming lessons in the backyard (laughs) swimming pool. Um, So I've also read that you sort of, uh, how do I put this, started swimming in the Malawi lake. Can you talk to me a bit about this? Yeah, so Malawi is a really, really tiny country and it's made even smaller because a third of the country is taken up by this gigantic lake. It's kind of the lifeblood of the Malawi sort of culture and most of the population lives on the lake. And my dad is an avid sailor or was an avid sailor and he would go in and sail catamaran boats on that lake. And we, so we used to go up there probably, you know, every second weekend or so. Yeah and uh, get in the water and have a swim. Uh, None of us kids were particularly interested in sailing. We weren't interested in being on the water. We just wanted to be in the water. So, uh, but it was, it's, you know, you you had to be a little bit careful because there were crocodiles and there were hippopotamuses uh, in, in, in the water. So you really had to keep a sharp eye out because uh, there were some really big, nasty things lurking around in Australia. There are lots of little small things that, that can do you some serious (laughs) harm Um, in Africa, at least everything that can kill you is really big. So you can see it coming. (laughs) Do you ever have a face-to-face encounter with something that could, um, cause you danger? 
Yeah, I did. I had a pretty close call with a hippo one one day. Oh. We were we were out fishing um, in a little tinny, and I like was going in for a swim because it was really hot. And then, sort of next second, you just heard like this. And when you oh, hear that, yay. you know that it's a hippo. It's come up to take a breath, and you're like, "Oh my gosh!" And I think I would have broken the world record at eight years old getting back into that boat I got out of that water so so quickly um it was quite a notorious hippo in in that part of the lake actually um it got really aggressive male hippos get really aggressive towards the end of their life like once they start to get a bit old and um yeah he he had a little munch on a few villages and um, they had to relocate him to hippo heaven Mm because they didn't they didn't want him eating any more villages (laughs) Um, now, what was it like? You mentioned before in 2001 moving to Australia. How do you adjust to Australian culture and specifically, um, you know, hometown? Yeah, it's it's really interesting. It was a really big culture shock coming to Australia. We had heard a lot about it. We knew that uh, we were moving here when the Sydney Olympics were on. So we watched the Sydney 2000 Olympics the, the year before 2001. And we knew that we were coming to this incredible country. But I can remember landing in Australia and first, I mean, I'm in Brisbane, right? So it doesn't get very cold up here, but we landed (laughs) in like June. And I just remember, I mean, when I say winter in Brisbane, it probably, you know, minimums are like what, 11 degrees, maximum 24. But in Africa, we literally had like a wet season and a dry season instead of winter and summer. What, What were the temperatures in Africa? Oh, they, they were warm all year round. Like, you know, yeah. you, you hardly needed jumpers. And I just remember being so cold in Brisbane. And now <laughs> I just laugh. Like, so I, I remember. And, and now cold. you come down to Melbourne and you're like, oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think I probably would have turned into a little popsicle if I landed in Melbourne in, yeah. in June. Like, I just, I would have been like, mom, we need to go back to Africa. Um, <laughs> and I just, I remember how clean everything was. Um, and, I, and I know that, that that sounds really strange, but I just remember, you know, all the streets, there wasn't any rubbish. Uh, all the roads had gutters on them um, and all the traffic lights worked. And I was just like, oh, my gosh, where are we? Um, it was it was a it was a really, really strange uh, sort of time. And then I guess that the way that I got into swimming was through joining a local swim club to help us meet some people because we didn't know anyone in Brisbane and I think that that's just such a great thing that sport does for the community is they help connect people in and give you a friendship circle and you know I'm still friends with with a lot of those people who I I went to to see that sort of when I was nine years old. Were there any other sports that you were interested in uh, when you were in over in Africa but then also when you came to Australia? So uh, rugby union, my dad yeah. uh, was a big rugby union person uh, because, of course, he comes from South Africa, yeah. right? So the Springboks <laughs> is like in his DNA. And it, it's really interesting because when my parents moved to Australia, they were like, this is it. We really want to assimilate and be Australian and make sure that our kids identify as Australian and therefore my dad had to start supporting the Wallabies over the spring. <laughs> He was like, if I'm I'm expecting my children to be Australian, I'm going to have to really commit here. Um, So poor guys probably regretted that decision in the past couple (laughs) of years because poor wallabies have been struggling a little bit. But um, so we we, we used to to watch Rugby Union, um, had no idea what AFL was, was just like we, and when we arrived in Australia, it was, in the middle of when the Brisbane Lions were completing their hat trick, sort of in the early 2000s. So AFL was massive in Brisbane. And did you I, get a kind of misconception of the sport? Absolutely. I, I turned it on and I was just like, what is going on? It's chaos. Because, you know, rugby, there's all lines, you know, you can really see You're what's happening. Up very structured um you don't have to really know or see what's going on outside of where the ball actually is and I was like AFL it just looks like the ball is a magnet and then all the players are ball bearings and wherever the magnet goes on the field like 
the players just kind of follow it around. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and I was like, and, and you can throw it forward, but then you have to bounce it. And then if you hold it and you can get tackled, but then suddenly everyone yells ball. And it was, yeah. So I needed someone to explain the rules to me. And once I had them explained, and once I think I saw a live uh, AFL match, I began to have a much more appreciation for the sport. But yeah, it was... Um, it was it was a a pretty big induction into that. So did you do you have an AFL team? So I do support the Brisbane Lions. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, not not as fanatically as as it is in Melbourne. I, I learned very early on that it's um you you you're born into those teams down there. So yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, um, I I do definitely support the Brisbane Lions, and I support the Brisbane Broncos, you know, and I support the Reds. Uh, so I'm I'm very much a, a Brisbane-based supporter because um, yeah, it's it's where I spent most of my life. How old were you when you moved to Australia? So I was nine when I moved to Australia, and wow. I've lived for for most of that that time in Brisbane. I spent two years in Sydney in uh 2019 and 2020 but yeah the rest of the time I've been up in Brisbane I want to get into a bit of your swimming career can you tell me about the 2007 Youth Olympic Festival in Sydney oh wow you have done your research I haven't thought this far back and I can't even tell you when um the 2007 uh Olympic festival I think it was called was kind of like my breakthrough swim uh I became the youngest person to break the 25 second barrier in the 50 meters freestyle and it kind of catapulted me to a place where uh the Olympics the 2008 Olympics were the following year and suddenly I was you know 14 in 2007 and suddenly people were like oh hang on a second there's a real chance that this young kid could make uh the 2008 Olympics so I think that that is when I got put on the real radar of oh my goodness there could be this young kid who qualifies for an Olympic Games um I at the time, I just honestly, I was one of those weird kids that just loved sport. Like I just loved swimming. And as long as I was getting faster, I didn't really care that much. Um, obviously going to the Olympics was, was the ultimate dream, but it, it wasn't like that thing that I was really fixated on. It was just that every time I wanted to get in the pool, I wanted to swim a little bit faster um, I actually had a, a really interesting episode just just before that race at the uh, at the Youth Olympic Festival. I I used to sleepwalk a little bit as a kid, and I slept walked on that team, and I accidentally locked myself out of my room at oh. like two a.m. in the morning. <laughs> And I, I woke up with my hand like on the outside of the door, like as I pulled the door shut, and it made a really clunking noise. And I woke up and I was like. Oh no, this isn't good. I didn't have a yeah. roommate, so I had to go down to reception in my pajamas <laughs> and ask for a key to be let back in. Fortunately, I've outgrown that, and I haven't done that in a very long time. What did they say? What did you do? In, what are you doing up at this time? Yeah, they were like, "What's going on?" And and I I, I also remember being really confused because I don't. I don't know. You probably haven't slept walked, um, but like when you wake up because you've been so asleep and so. You, you're so confused. Like, I was like, why am I outside? Why can't I get into my room? What's going on? And, and it, so I was like trying to wake up, trying to get back to bed because I was racing the next day. And then, yeah, having to go down to reception and like ring the bell. And they were like, yeah, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't doing anything like naughty. I was just, I was sleepwalking. <laughs> so did you train for that Youth Olympic Festival and how do you prepare for those kinds of events? Yeah, so at that point, I was uh, training quite a lot. Um, I think I was doing sort of uh, maybe eight or nine swim sessions a week and a couple of wow. gym sessions a week. Um, but like I said, it was I was I was just one of those kids who loved it. You know, I I would train before and after school, so I would train from five a.m. to seven a.m. in the morning, and then from five p.m. to seven p.m. at night, and go to school during the day. 
And I just really, really loved it. Uh, I had a great group uh, of people who I was training with. So a great squad and an awesome coach who I'm still with, you know, or uh, who, who I've been with for the past 20 years. So he's taken me from a nine-year-old uh, through to 29 and, and to four Olympic games, which is a, a pretty special and unique relationship. Um, so yeah, I was, I was definitely training hard, but I was, I was fortunate to have a coach who was uh, really aware that uh, while I was really, I was a really good youngster, he didn't want to overwork me and overburden me and burn me out. He, he mm-hmm. could see a really long career for me. And so he made sure that uh, even though I was working hard, that I was still having a lot of fun and that things weren't too serious. And he didn't make it, you know, it all about performance and training which I look back on and I'm just so grateful for uh, because I still do have a real love for the sport. And I think it's because I wasn't pushed too hard as a kid. Um, Now in 2008, you had a victory in the 50 meter freestyle of the Japan open setting an Australian and Commonwealth record 24.38 seconds. What's it like when you finish, you look up at that board and see your record breaking time. Yeah, that was pretty special. That's actually, I, I would say, one of the the early highlights of my career was turning around and seeing that. You just, it's it's one of those races that just goes so well, and you turn around and you look and you're like, what? No, yeah. there has to be a mistake. Um, and yeah, it's it, it's it's something that that you really strive to emulate again. And I think it's it, it's really hard because sometimes, uh, especially in sprinting, uh, the harder you try the slower you go. It's almost like, I, I don't know if you watch Usain Bolt and he's so relaxed in his movements and even when he's running and, and, and you look at some of his competitors who are all like stiff and tight and working really hard. And, 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 it's, and it's not that he isn't trying hard, but he's just being really relaxed about it and he's allowing his body to do the talking and he's switching off his brain. So uh, I think that, yeah, when I was younger, it was a little bit easier to switch off my brain. Um, and yeah, it was, it was one of those really magical, uh, magical races. And I actually remember the medals that they gave us. Um, they were shaped like little welcoming um, bowls that, that, that traditionally uh, Japanese put sake wine in and you like, um, and, and you're given that as like a welcome present. And so the, the medals weren't flat. They were actually shaped like these bowls. Um, I wonder if I still have them somewhere. I'm sure I do. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> Can you talk to me a bit about how you got the opportunity and the call-up to compete at that 2008 Beijing Olympics and I guess the process involved in actually qualifying for an Olympic Games? Yeah, so we have a pretty strict qualifying uh, regime and we go through uh, what's called uh, an Olympic trials. And at that time, it was sort of, I think the... The Olympics were in July and the qualifiers were in April of the year before. So to qualify for an Olympic Games uh, or any major competition to be on the Australian swim team, you have to come first or second in your event uh, and reach a qualifying time, uh, which has to put you within the top 10 in the world. So the, our qualification standards are pretty tough and pretty tight. And that means that the, the standard is really high. And I came into those Olympic trials as like maybe a shot uh, to swim a, a relay uh, in, in the 100 metres freestyle because for relays, they take up to six people um, so that you can race uh, some different teams in the morning and different teams uh, at the finals at night. And then like kind of like maybe an individual spot in the 50 metres freestyle. And I ended up qualifying for an an individual swim in the 100 metres freestyle and the 50 metres freestyle. So I came second in in both of those events to, uh, you know, one of the the greatest swimmers that Australia has ever produced in in Libby Trickett. She was uh, right at the top of her game at that point. And I was just this little youngster. Um, I was 15 at the time and just came blazing through and managed to nab um, some spots on that team. Now, can you talk to me a bit about, I mean, you mentioned before your sort of training program, doing eight to nine swims in the pool a week, sessions, a couple of gym sessions a week. When you're preparing for an Olympic Games, what does that schedule look like and what do you do in those gym sessions? 
Yeah, so for, for me, um, I particularly when I was younger, it was a lot of really speed-based training. So I didn't do a whole heap of kilometres in the pool. My coach was pretty good about wanting to keep the sessions as uh, short and as fast as possible. So I would have probably only averaged, you know, three or four kilometres a session, which is, is quite little uh, for a swimmer. And then in the gym, it was really about trying to get me as, as strong as possible. And obviously, uh, when I was younger, so sort of in, in 2008, when I was, you know, 15, 16, I was still developing. So we just, we, we didn't really push things in the gym as, as much as we did towards the, the back half of my career, but towards the back half of my career, it was really about getting as strong as possible because, you know, obviously men are faster than women. Uh, and really the, the, the big difference there is their strength and their ability to uh, hold their strength over a, over a prolonged period of time. So hold their technique because to hold good technique, you have to be really strong. So I would be lifting heavy weights in the gym, not a lot of cardio because I already do a lot of cardio in the water. Um, our kind of bread and butter uh, gym exercises, chin-ups, and I used to do weighted chin-ups. So wow. I think that, you know, when, when I was at my best, um, I think my PB was two chin-ups uh, with 45 kilos around my waist. Oh, far <laughs> out. That's insane. Could probably almost have you hanging off me. Yeah, exactly. That, Matt, that's more than me. Chin-ups. <laughs> now, you won a, your, a bronze medal at that 2008 Beijing Olympics. When you look up, see you're in third place and you receive that first Olympic medal, what's that feel like? Yeah, it was, it was really strange. I, I felt incredibly proud of, of, that, of that moment. It was a, a really special thing to go and to swim. You know, I think I was two one hundredths off my personal best and to execute that in an Olympic final uh, when the pressure is really on is, is, is really special. I think that I uh, was a part of a really successful uh, 2008 team as well and I, I, I definitely um, being really shy and, and being really young I think I struggled a little bit just socially um, and making friends so uh, I think that I was you know quietly very proud of it um, but you know outwardly I, I, I might not have showed it as much and I think that being able to come back to Australia and to share that with uh, all of my friends, you know, my friends at school, because we were still at school at that point and getting to take my medal in was, was pretty special. So I think that that, that was when I, I kind of really properly celebrated was, was when I got back to Australia and was uh, felt safe with my friends and family. What were your friends and family's reaction when they see that medal? They, they were pretty excited. Yeah, they're pretty excited. Um, <laughs> and yeah, Is that a bit of an understatement? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I think that, you know, my, my school had set up like this little, it was like this little shrine in the library where it was, you know, people would put good luck cards and there was like a big <laughs> cut out of me. And so going back to school was um, very surreal. And then, yeah, going back and everyone's like, oh, can I see them? Can I see them? And um, yeah, it was, it was, it was pretty cool. So you had two medals. You had the 50 metre freestyle relay for bronze and you also had bronze the Australia women's four-person 100-meter freestyle team, and you placed third in that, obviously, in that freestyle finals. Can you tell me about what's it like as a young sort of teenager working in a team? Yeah, I was. It, it was. It was really interesting because um, I, like I said, I, I was incredibly young and I was incredibly shy. Uh, and was in awe of all these people who I was suddenly on the team with. You know, just the year before, I was doing school assignments on some of them. You know, I, I remember doing a, a big English assignment on Liesl Jones, and suddenly I was on a team with her. So I found that a, a little bit overwhelming. And I got, got told something as we were about to walk out before the final of the women's 4 by 100 freestyle relay um, from Libby Trickett. And it, it's, it's something that I never forget. And it's something that I make sure that I tell all of my teammates now before we walk out. And it's really simple. It says, uh, there are no apologies in relays. So no one apologizes. Everyone knows that we're going out and we're doing our best. And I think that that really helped me because I felt like I underperformed in, in that relay. I, I didn't swim to the best of my ability. Um, 
and I felt really embarrassed and I felt really ashamed uh, because I, I really thought that I could have done a little bit better or I should have gone a little bit faster. Uh, but I think that re remembering that line that Libby had told me, there are no apologies. And um, after the race, when I tried to apologize, she was like, no, 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 remember, there are no apologies. Uh, we're all in this together. Uh, that's something that I've really taken forward and uh, I hope to instill in future generations. Um, now, I want to get into the 2009 World Championships. I mean, you had hip injuries prior to these World Championships. Can you talk to me about how you prepare for final swims and that 50-metre freestyle finals um, and get past those injuries to actually be able to perform at your best? Yeah, I have been a little bit of an injury-plagued uh, athlete. Um, I've been injured through, throughout pretty much my whole career, and uh, my hip injury was, was particularly bad in 2009. I think that I ended up having my first surgery on it it was either just but it was it was either sometime before the the world championships or just afterwards so um i had a torn uh a torn cartilage in my in my hip torn labrum which needed cleaning out and so yeah it was uh i mean it, you just kind of had to accept it right i i accept, accepted the limitations that were being placed on me from uh from this injury and i just worked with with what i with what i had and um, yeah, was was really happy with with walking away with another bronze medal in the fifty meters freestyle. I felt like I had, you know, proved that the bronze medal from the year before at the Olympics wasn't just uh, some luck, you know, beginner's luck. That I wasn't just some some young upstart um, who could perform once and then you'd never hear from again. So it was really nice to be able to back that up. When you back up that two thousand eight Olympics and go to London in two thousand twelve, what's that like? You know. You're not just a one-off Olympics kind of player, kind of sort, yeah. of sort of athlete. Yeah, that that was that was incredibly special. So after the 2009 World Championships in 2010 and 2011, I uh, I contracted glandular fever in 2010, oh. and then in 2011 I was out with um, it's called post-viral fatigue, and it's kind of like mm. a mild form of chronic fatigue, which means that mm. uh, sort of the 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 harder you train, the worse you get. And uh, as an athlete, that is incredibly frustrating because all we want to do is work really hard. So at, at that point, I wasn't even really sure if I was going to make another Olympic team. You know, was I just going to be this you know, promising young swimmer who never quite reached her potential uh, for you know, some very tragic reasons? And so qualifying for uh, the London Olympics was like this huge relief and it, it uh, it made me realize how much I wanted it because I'd had to overcome so many challenges to, to get there. Whereas in 2008, I was just young and everything was new and exciting. And, you know, I hadn't really gone through anything really major until that point, but uh, qualifying for the Olympics in 2012. And it, it was the first time I qualified for an Olympic games along alongside my sister as well. So um, most listeners will probably know that, uh, I have a younger sister, Bronte, and uh, we got to compete uh, in, in, in London together, which was incredible. What was that like to, you know, be at the Olympics in London with your sister, Bronte? I think that might have been her first Olympics too. And, yeah. you know, you can support her through that journey because it's your second time there. Yeah, it was... Actually, that 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 event where where we qualified together in the women's fifty freestyle at the Olympic trials uh, for the two thousand and twelve Olympic Games, it still remains one of my favourite memories from my swimming career because turning around and seeing a number one and a number two next to our names, which meant that we had qualified for the Olympics together, was just an absolute dream come true. You know, we'd been dreaming about going to the Olympics together since we were, you know, seven and nine years old. So um, that that is still one of my absolute career highlights. And then being able to go through an Olympic Games with your sister, uh, you know, lots of people get really homesick because you're in a new environment and maybe you don't know a lot of people on the team, but to have someone who you know so well who you can be completely yourself around with you definitely makes that experience so much more special. 
So what was that like when you, you're actually in the pool with her? Was there a bit of friendly competition there? <laughs> um, we, I feel like we use competition for good and not evil. So we race against each other and we push each other a lot in training because we, we do train together. And, and when we race each other, we, you know, go hell for leather, uh, hell for leather. But once we step away from the pool, we recognize that our relationship as sisters is so much more important than what we do in the pool and that we value each other as people uh, before our performances in the pool. So um, it's, it's, it's difficult and it's challenging, no doubt about that, because we, we both want to win. Of course we do. That's, that's why we're really athletes. But and, 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 I, and I will say that full credit must go to Bronte because for a long time she uh, played second fiddle to me and the question that she got asked most often in interviews was, when are you going to beat your sister Kate? Or, um, you know, do you think you can beat Kate? And, you know, at, at certain points in time I was number one in the world and it's like no one else gets asked when are you going to beat that number one person in the world on a sort of daily basis uh, and I think that for a long time she wasn't known as Bronte Campbell. She was known as Kate Campbell's sister. And so full credit must go to her for, uh, you know, allowing us to maintain the close relationship that we have and for her not to become bitter um, or jealous of, of my success um, because I think that that's, that's incredibly challenging and it just goes to show what a special person she is. Now, the 2013 World Aquatics Championships, you teamed up with Bronte, Emma McKenna and Alicia Coots to win the silver medal. What was that experience like for you? Not only you, so in the 2012 London Olympics, you were actually competing against Bronte, but then to be on a team with her, you know, you probably did that in the backyard swimming pool in Brisbane and like at Lake Malawi back in our South Africa. Uh, almost. Yeah, there we go. All right. There we excellent. go. All right, where were we? All right, at the 2013 World Aquatics Championships, you teamed up with Sister Bronte, Emma McKean, and Alicia Coots to win the silver medal. How do you find the experience of not only, I mean, in the 2012 London Olympics, you were against her, now you're on a team with her. You would um, have those dreams as a young kid swimming in the backyard pool or in Lake Malawi back in South Africa. Yeah, that was uh, that was pretty special to be able to share a podium with Bronte. I think that we became the first siblings to share a podium at a World Championships in something like seventy five years. So, uh, yeah, it's 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 one of those those really special moments. And you know, we we were rooming together at the time, so we could go back and celebrate together in the room, and then prepare for the rest of the the meet and the rest of the competition that we needed to to get ready for. But definitely again stands out as one of the highlights so you had the 100 meter freestyle world title record um as you individually at 52.34 seconds what's that like you know you now own um an official world record not i, I mean you already have one for the 50 meter but now you've got one for double that you've got one for the 100 meter yeah that that was really special. I have all, well, up until that point, I'd had a little bit of a love-hate relationship with the 100 metres freestyle. It's, it is the race that probably gives you the smallest margins for error. And I felt like uh, during that time, I really got a good handle on it. And if you swim 100 metres freestyle really well, it's the best feeling in the world. If you swim it really badly, it's the worst feeling in the world. Uh, and so to go out and execute a, a near perfect race in a high pressure environment uh, was yeah, extremely satisfying. Now in the 2015 world championships, you won gold in the hundred meter relay freestyle, but then you won bronze in, Oh, um, sorry. Meet, there was the gold was the um, hundred meter relay freestyle sorry and the bronze was the hundred meter freestyle individual now you came behind your sister in that she mm -hmm. won silver was there any um uh, family emotions or did she get into you a bit in with that one she actually won that so she won the world championships and i came third wow. in, in in that event so um the tables had well and truly <laughs> turned uh and i was getting a, a little bit of an insight into what it would have been like 
for Bronte all those years while, while I was was winning. I guess that there's, you know, while you are obviously really disappointed for yourself, if I can't win, then I want someone who is super close to me to win. Uh, but, you know, it, it really gave me a little bit of an insight into uh, maybe some of the, the comments that, that Bronte uh, received at, at that time, because, uh, you know, I can clearly remember going down to my local supermarket and, uh, you know, the, the guy at the checkout recognized me and he said, oh, you're, you're one of the uh, Campbell sisters. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I am. He's like, oh, are you Kate or are you Bronte? And I said, oh, I'm Kate. And he was like, oh, you're the one who used to be good, but now your sister's good. And I was like, oh, mate, like, <laughs> thank you for that. Thanks for that. I still also came third in the world, which like isn't too bad. Um, <laughs> so it, it, it like it, it really gave me an insight into what Bronte would have had to put up with, because for so long I had been number one and she had been, you know, just behind me. And so people would have been saying things like uh, that to her. And again, like to her full credit, she has uh, never allowed that to interfere with our relationship. And so I really made sure that I wasn't going to allow that to interfere with our relationship either. Yeah, the 2016 Rio Olympics was a sort of, I guess, monumental Olympics, um, I guess, for you. You had two medals, one gold in the 100-meter relay, one silver in the medley. How do you find competing in different events at the Olympics and when you have to – and what space, time, space do you have in between events? Mm. Yeah, the, the those Rio Olympics were uh, an, a roller coaster of Olympics. So I, like you said, I, I won the, the gold medal as part of the 4x100 freestyle relay. Uh, alongside my sister Bronte, we got to share the top of an Olympic podium together. We broke the world record. Uh, we got to sing the national anthem. We got to see the flag raise, which is just you know, all our childhood dreams coming true in one moment. You know, it's it's something that someone would write a Hollywood script about and the producers would hand it back and say, we can't have this ending. It needs to be a little bit more realistic. Uh, and for us, it was just the the, the absolute uh, coming true of, of a fairy tale moment for us. And then I was due to compete in the 100 metres freestyle later in the week. And I went into that as um, the favourite. I was a world record holder at the time. Uh, I was supposed to win that. And I didn't. Um, I ended up coming sixth in, in that event. And I was completely devastated. And I think that uh, for people who maybe haven't experienced uh, or haven't been involved in elite sport, you can't quite comprehend the heartbreak that goes along with uh, suffering a loss or a defeat or um, a perceived failure at the time. But then I had to pick myself up and pull myself back together because, like you said, I still had races to do. So I was competing in the 4x100 uh, medley relay, which is always on the last day of competition. So I couldn't feel sorry for myself for long. I had to keep going and, and I managed to uh, swim the race in that relay that I wish I'd been able to do in my individual event just a, a couple of days before. So uh, I, I can remember, I think I, I took Australia from fifth to second uh, in, wow. in my leg of, of the relay. And I can remember being, you know, really, really proud of that at the end of, at the end of the race, but mm -hmm. still a little bit devastated and heartbroken by what had happened a couple of days before. So can you talk to me about 2017? I believe you had a break from swimming. Can you mm. tell me a bit about that and what happened there? Yeah, so it was it was off the back of 2016. I obviously that 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 was my third Olympic Games, and I had suffered uh, a, a really big uh, heartbreak. Um, the the way that I describe it, it, it was kind of like going through a relationship breakup. I felt like I had devoted, you know, so much of my time to swimming and then uh, swimming completely betrayed me. It was like it was cheating on me and, um, you know, wasn't the person who I fell in love with and, and all of those things. So I just, I... And I, I also had never lived a life outside of the rigorous constraints of training and competing at the highest level. And they are rigorous, you know, in, 
in a regular week, I will do nine swimming sessions, three gym sessions, two spin bike sessions, and two Pilates sessions. You know, it's uh, upwards of 35 hours of exercise (laughs) a week. And uh, on on top of that, I I would be studying university or, uh, you know, doing sponsorship appearances. And that goes all year round. You know, we don't stop for Christmas. We don't stop for public holidays. Uh, that is pretty much continuous. You know, we get a couple of weeks off a year. Um, and so at, at that point, I was 24 years old. Uh, I was feeling really heartbroken because I hadn't been able to achieve this goal that, that I'd really wanted for a long time. Uh, and I just didn't know what life looked like outside of swimming. So I just felt like I, I needed a, a break. Um, I, I never... I never wanted to retire. Like I knew that I wasn't done with it, but I just knew that I, I couldn't go back to that grind and I needed some, some time and space to clear my head. So I decided to not compete at the world championships in 2017. And I actually went over, they were in Budapest and I went over and I watched them uh, and I was able to be a little bit a part of the team. Uh, I went and I did, you know, a little bit of training and racing all over the world and felt like I got some really good life experience, which I felt like I hadn't had the freedom or the flexibility to do up until then. How did you come back better and ever in 2018 at the Gold Coast Commonwealth Games? I actually really believe it was because I took that time off. So I, I took that time off. I had also been battling quite a few injuries. You know, the, the injuries that, that I'd had um, had been getting worse and worse. Uh, and right up until, you know, 2016, I was really struggling just, just to make it through the training. I was needing lots of cortisone injections. I was on lots of anti-inflammatories and I was just in, in physical pain all of the time. And allowing myself to have that break in 2017 allowed all of those injuries to settle down. It allowed me to go and work with the physio and actually do everything that the physio told me to do because for once I could take a rest from swimming because the first thing a physio will tell you to do is you need to take a break and you need to stop training as hard. Uh, And when you're training for a world championships uh, or an Olympic Games, that's just simply not possible. You're like, well, I can't do that. You need to (laughs) just figure out how to make this pain manageable Mm. so that I can keep going. Mm. So I, um, I, I allowed all my injuries to settle down and then I came back and I was like really motivated again and I really wanted to work really hard. So I think that, yeah, the, the, the combination of, of the physical break and then the mental break was really good. Can you tell me about the two gold medals and a silver medal and the gold 100 meter relay? Yeah, uh, the Commonwealth Games, I think, is one of the funnest uh, events that I've ever competed at. It is it, was, is it less serious for an athlete than the Olympics? It, yeah, it is, it is less serious. Australia typically does so incredibly well. Um, and I, yeah, got to, got to uh, do some of my best racing and perform in front of a home crowd, which I'd never got to do before that that point. And yeah, it was it was it was pretty special. What Just give me one second. Yeah. Sorry. Thanks. That's all right. Um, now, what about what did you do in between um, races? Um, not just at the Commonwealth Games, but in between Olympics too. I mean, do you go out and enjoy um, nightlife and the experiences of Beijing and London and things like that? So while while you're competing, you pretty much uh, go to the training pool and come back to the Olympic Village and that's it. Uh, and you're fully, fully focused um, and it's all about performance. And you do absolutely everything right to make sure that your performances are uh, sort of the best that they can possibly be. Uh, once you finish competing at, at an Olympic Games, we get to stay the second week and we get to uh, all come back together as a team. We get to go to the closing ceremony and then all fly back to Australia as the Australian Olympic team. And that's a pretty special experience. And, and during that second week, you, you can go out and you can enjoy yourself. You can go and watch other events, which is pretty special. Um, 
I, in 2008, unfortunately, I was uh, still underage. So I couldn't leave the village unless I was with a team manager. So um, I had to go. And one of the, the things that you do in, uh, 2000, in, in Beijing is you go shopping at the silk markets and you get like a whole heap of fake handbags and stuff. That's like a, a really traditional thing that you have to do. Uh, but I had to go and take like the head coach there. And I just remember him just being like, oh my gosh, I'm being dragged shopping by a 16 year old girl. (laughs) I am not paid enough money for this. And I was like, I'm so sorry, but like, I really want to do this. And so you're going to have to come along. Um, but yeah, uh, in, in in 2012, I, I, I'm the type of person who uh, is an absolute Olympic nut. So I will go to as many events as possible. You know, I, um, I went to the athletics and the basketball and open water and diving and synchronized swimming. And um, yeah, I always try and get to as many events as possible. Um, very different in Tokyo uh, in that we were only allowed at the, uh, our venue and, and in the Olympic Village, so at our competition venue and in the village. And then as soon as we finished competing, we were on a plane and, and back to Australia. What did you do between that period of time in 2018, um, between that time and 2021? And then, yeah, what's it like? And then also, you know, you've scheduled and all your training's going towards Tokyo 2020. And then you find out that it's got delayed a year. What was that like for you? Yeah, that that was um, that was pretty difficult. I had uh, relocated to uh, Sydney in uh, 2019 to um, my my coach moved down, so I followed him down. So we had a, a new squad environment, and uh, I did a lot of travel in in 2019. I spent you know four and a half months of of that overseas uh, to really really hone my racing skills so that for the Tokyo 2020 Olympics that I would be in the best possible shape. And I was tracking really well, progressing really well. And then it came to, uh, it was the 23rd of March, 2020, when we got the news that the Olympics were not happening. And at that point, we didn't know if they were being canceled, whether being postponed, if they are being postponed, how long for, like, is it, going to be a couple of weeks a couple of months is it a year you know what does that look like and then the whole of Australia went into a lockdown um I know that uh you know I shouldn't mention lockdown uh to anyone in Melbourne because that's just too horrendous for you guys to think about um (laughs) but there was a point where the whole of Australia went into a lockdown it wasn't just you guys down in Melbourne and so I had to decide that no I didn't want to be lockdown in Sydney in a one-bedroom apartment I so I had to jump in my car and I had 24 hours to drive up to Brisbane uh, before the state borders shut so it was it was crazy Um, and I think that I personally really struggled Um, physically I really really struggled Uh, my body really didn't enjoy uh, we were out of the water for about eight weeks because we had no access to any swimming pools for those eight weeks. And my body went from being in like uh, absolute peak physical condition to not getting any conditioning. So it fell off quite quickly and trying to get back uh, into that shape. It just never quite made it. Um, so for, for some people, the, the extra year was, was really great. It gave them a chance to get in a little bit more training or get over an injury. But for me, it had the opposite effect. Um, but in saying that, like, I, I can't be too disappointed with how things panned out in Tokyo. What was it like when you get that call up to, you know, be the flag bearer at the 2021 Olympics with Patty Mills? Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty special moment. Um, and getting the call up and being asked to do that, you just think, really? Like, why? Like, why are you picking me? This is a, a huge honour. And then being asked to do it alongside Patty Mills, who is just an absolute legend of a person. Like, I just can't express how wonderful he is and uh, how much he... Uh, cares for people and how much he does for his community and for his teammates and how much of an impact that he has on on the broader team uh yeah it was one of the the real 
uh, highlights of, of my career for sure. So when you're walking out, I mean, everyone's got a story about, I mean, not everyone, I mean, flag barrier, bearers generally have a great story of when they're walking around waving the flag and things like that. I mean, Andrew Gaze um, has been on the show and told us how he was waving the flag up and down in the 2000 Olympics. He didn't know where the Olympic committee and officials were. So he's waving it up and down for about a period of 20 metres, doesn't know where anyone is. So what was that um, like for you and what does that story entail? Yeah, it was, it, it was really strange because I, I wasn't really sure how to feel or how I would be feeling uh, leading the Australian Olympic team out alongside Paddy Mills. And when we stepped out into the stadium, it was, it was almost a really sobering moment because we walked out into this beautiful uh, stadium and it was completely empty because, of course, there were no crowds uh, no crowds were, were allowed in, in Tokyo uh, because of the outbreak of the coronavirus. And it was uh, such a juxtaposition with what had gone on just a couple of hours earlier. So uh, when all the athletes are getting ready to go to the opening ceremony, uh, we all start at the Olympic Village and we all get loaded onto these buses and we go in this long convoy over to the Olympic Stadium. And as we were driving through the streets of Tokyo in this bus convoy, uh, all the Tokyo locals came out and they clapped and they cheered and they waved and they held up signs and you could just tell how excited they were uh, to have an Olympic Games in their home city and how much they wanted to be a part of it. And then walking out into this stadium that was completely silent and completely empty, it kind of made me realise the level of sacrifice that went into hosting these Olympic Games. And I think that the economic sacrifice has been well documented, you know, um, that it, there was a huge financial cost for Japan to put on these games. Uh, but there was a real personal cost as well. And, and that personal cost was borne by thousands and thousands of, of people who, who don't get to have that Olympic experience, who don't get to um, cheer on their home athletes at their home Olympic Games. And, uh, you know, I, I lived in Sydney for two years and people still talk about where they were at the Sydney Olympics or who they saw or how they were a part of it. And for so many people, so many Japanese people, that moment was really taken away. So it made me incredibly grateful that I could just be at the games and competing because I realized that so many people weren't getting their Olympic moment, but I at least was. Um, and so I think that that actually really helped me reframe those, those Olympics. And I was just like, I'm so lucky to be here. I have nothing to complain about. I'm just going to go out and do my best. So you had the two bronze medals, one in the medley and one in the hundred meter relay final, and then also the bronze in the hundred meter What's that like? You know, you're at your fourth Olympics. You've got two gold medals and a bronze. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, incredible, um, you know, to, to be a part of the women's 4 by 100 uh, freestyle relay team on night one, and, and that was our third Olympics in a row, coming away as Olympic champions. We broke our own world record again uh, on night one of competition, and we really felt like it just set up the week for uh, what ended up being like a little bit of a gold rush for the Australian Dolphins. But that was, that was incredibly special. And then winning a, another individual medal, um, so an individual in that 100 metres freestyle, whereas uh, five years earlier I had gone into it as favourite and hadn't managed to, to make the podium. And then uh, coming in, in in 2021 and executing, uh, you know, my, my best race, uh, I, I, knew, I knew after the race that I hadn't won, but I, I almost, like I, well, I almost, I didn't care because I knew that I had swum the race to the best of my ability. Uh, and then probably I would say my, my highlight was, was coming over the Americans in that medley relay on the last day. And um, I, was, I was lucky enough to be swimming last in, in that race. And we managed to beat the Americans by uh, 12 one hundredths of a second. So 0.12 of a second. And that was pretty special because we were not supposed to win that event. Um, the Americans were supposed to be... Uh, the, the the winning team on the day but 
didn't execute it and everyone in Australia stepped up and, and really took it to them. When you're swimming last in a medley, how do you, is there any pressure on your shoulders? Um, in some ways, yes, but in another way, no, like I love it. Um, swimming last in, in a relay is where I love to be. Cause I'm like, bring it on. I look over at the people next to me and I'm like, I kind of feel sorry for you because I'm really good at this <laughs> <laughs> and you don't even know what's coming for you. Um, so mm. I just, I, I feel like I, it, it brings out the absolute best in me. My, my best performances are, are in relays and I am able to, to step into this version of myself who suddenly has no doubts, who backs herself 100%, who takes risks. And uh, I just love uh, the idea that I can, you know, try and catch someone or um, swimming over the top of them in, in the last couple uh, of metres. It's, yeah, I, I absolutely love it. Can you talk to me a bit about that closing ceremony? And, you know, not all the team, um, some had to fly home early due to COVID and things like that. How, what was that sort of special for you and Paddy Mills to be out there? And what's Paddy Mills like as a person, as I assume you would have gotten to know him over that Olympic period? Yeah, I, I got to know Patty really, really well. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's still, it's, it's one of the things that I'm just like, oh my goodness, I totally didn't expect my life to take this turn. But, you know, like I have his personal phone number. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> Sometimes I just like scroll through the contacts on my phone and I'm like, Oh, Patty Mills number. <laughs> cool. um, so we we actually didn't didn't get to to go to to the closing ceremony. We we had to leave the the village because our, our time as as competitors were finished. So I was still in hotel quarantine when when the the closing ceremony took place. And I can remember sitting on my couch and and watching the the athletes who uh, had had competed uh, and uh, towards the end of the competition and and got to be a part of that. Uh, and, you know, saying thank you to Japan for hosting such a great games and then passing the torch on to uh, Paris 2024 is always like a really symbolic moment. Uh, it's like, you know, we, we've done our job and now it's on to you. So I, I was still in hotel quarantine when that took place, but, yeah, I definitely sat back and was able to watch it and enjoy it. What was it like when you got home to Australia? <laughs> well, we had to do two weeks hotel quarantine, so... Yeah. Um, we, we had some time to, to debrief and, uh, and, and relax. So we, um, yeah, and then, and then coming out of, of, of quarantine and being amongst friends and family again. And, um, again, I was, I was very lucky in that I was in Brisbane and, and I could see small groups of, of friends and family. That there were some athletes who, uh, you know, would, would return to their home states and go straight into lockdowns they couldn't even you know really see see many people or, or celebrate with many people but I feel like that that is the best part for me um, is the coming home and um, being able to share your experience with your friends and family because they are such a big part of the journey um, I always say that you know I when I bring my medal along to anything I'm, I'm not showing my medal to people I'm sharing it with them because I feel like their support and their love has helped me get to to where I am and I wouldn't have been able to do it without them and so while the medal hangs around my neck um, and and is in my possession it also belongs to a lot of different people we expect Kate Campbell to be at a Commonwealth Games 2022 or Paris 2024 Olympics uh, so uh, not not uh, the Commonwealth Games this year. I have decided to take this year off. Um, yeah. It was a formula that worked quite well for me mm. in 2017. <laughs> so I'm hoping that that it'll work really well for me in, in 2022. So unfortunately, I'm going to be sitting out the Commonwealth Games. I, I will actually be over in Europe. I am taking six months to travel around Europe and, um, you know, have have a, a bit of a break for the first time in, in my entire life, really. And so I'll actually be over in Europe. I'm, I'm planning on going to Birmingham and, and, and watching the games over there because it's, it's going to be a great time. And, yes, then coming back and trying to push on for Paris 2024 uh, because 
yeah, uh, Paris sounds like it'll be an incredible games. And uh, I feel like I've got one more in me. Yeah. Stay tuned, everyone, to see Kate Campbell take part in the 2024 Paris Olympics. Kate, it's been great to have you on. I want to finish off with one more question. What's your best advice to anyone who wants to be a professional swimmer and be at the top level and play at the, I mean, compete at the Olympics and be successful and win gold medals like yourself? Mm. Oh, I would say um, the first thing to do is to make sure that you enjoy it. Um, so to make sure that that you come into the sport because you're motivated to be better and to get faster and not to necessarily, you know, win those, those medals. Uh, that's how I definitely started out in the sport. And it's, it's why I've remained in the sport for, for as long as I have, because I, I, I like to try and get like that little bit better. Uh, and then I would just say to be brave because it's uh, long and it's difficult and it's scary at times. And, you know, when I step out behind the starting blocks of an Olympic Games, I'm terrified. Uh, and what, what I love about the, the saying be brave is that um, bravery doesn't exist in an area of safety. It only exists in an area of uh, danger and pressure and, and, and when you are afraid. Um, if you stay in your comfort zone, you, you never have to dip into bravery. So um, go out and challenge yourself, set yourself some brave goals and, uh, yeah, enjoy the journey because uh, it'll lead you to some really weird places. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Kate, for coming on today and putting aside, you know, 50 or so minutes of your time to come on and have a chat. It's been an absolute honour to have you on. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this. Thanks, Kate. Stay tuned, everyone, for more Sporting Max on 1116 SEN. This is Sporting Max with Max Becker on SEN.